This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. For today's show, we have a guest that needs very little introduction. If you've ever heard of Games Workshop titles such as Warhammer Fantasy Battle or Warhammer 40k, or Warlord Games titles such as Bolt Action, then you more than likely already know who Rick Priestley is. I'd like to officially welcome him to the pod, and for all you listeners, please enjoy. All right, we are live here. Uh, this is our, our our first sort of rodeo, and we've got uh, the legendary Rick Priestley here. So, Mr. Rick Priestley, hello, how are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you very much. How's yourself? I am doing okay. Thank you so much for being interested in doing this. Um, the whole impetus behind this idea of kind of doing a podcast is just have interesting conversations with interesting people that have, you know, something to do with gaming. So, um, you were, yeah, oh, you, know, you were, <laughs> to be honest with you, you were literally the first person I thought of. Um, because when you think about games um, and gaming and how niche it can be, I feel like I can go to pretty much any major city and find uh, a games workshop store, which I know that you were a huge, huge part of the beginning of that company and the beginning of Warhammer. So, yes, that's right, particularly the beginning of Warhammer. Yeah, uh, the actual company itself started in 1975, and I was only 16, so I was a schoolboy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it started as a, a, a company that imported American games, mostly the new Dungeons and Dragons that had been uh, uh, invented um, by um, Gary Gygax and, and friends. And uh, so Games Workshop started off basically as a games importer, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't join until uh, quite a bit later. But I think Warhammer is the thing people most associate me with. Yeah, but interestingly enough, though, I mean, literally yesterday, um, I was playing Bolt Action, which, again, is just another one of those, like, you know, if you ask somebody about historical miniature gaming or sci-fi fantasy gaming, these are usually the names that kind of, you know, spring to mind first. And Bolt Action is just a wonderful game. So it is a, It's a fantastic game, and I can't take full credit for that. Uh, the what makes Bolt Action such a great game is all the, the dice pulling and the uh, uh, the pin system, all of which was actually done by Alessio. He dragged mm-hmm. me into helping develop the game, but really it's Alessio's game at heart. So I, I can't take too much credit for that one. But I did. I did we pulled it together, uh, together uh, uh, the first edition, and then um, I think subsequently Alessio more or less did the second on his own. But um, they've kept they've kept me as a, a co- co-author, so... There you are, bathing in the reflected glory of somebody else's work. <laughs> Can't help it. Well, well, you know, that's actually an interesting place to start, right? So when we're thinking about game designing, so what was it about the order pull dice and the pins that kind of sprung into your minds in terms of having a good game or an effective game? Uh, well, it, I, you'd have to ask Alessio, really, but um, I think at the time uh, that the trend was becoming uh, very, very anti um, I go, you go in terms of games um, sequencing. So 
in, in fact, it sounds a little technical to stop diving in there, but most games are played like chess. You know, I take a turn, you take a turn, I take a turn, you take a turn. And that's sometimes referred to as I go, you go, um, especially by people who don't like it. It's, it's rather a disparaging term. It's usually called alter, alternating turns. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how all games were played for years and years and years, and no one thought twice about it, really. The alternative was always simultaneous moves to written orders, which is a bit tedious because you have to write down all the orders and everything, and then there's always a degree of interpretation when you're moving uh, simultaneously, which you don't get with the I go, you go type system, at least it's clear. But at the time we did, we did bolt action, there was a massive anti-I-go-you-go um, kind of feeling in the um, games community. And what happened was it's from going from being a standard kind of way of playing a game, it sort of became commercial kiss of death. You couldn't market or sell a game that had a, an old-fashioned, as it was perceived, I-go-you-go system. So the tradition was then to do something that was either an interleaved system or um, a diced for system, a bit like in my um, uh, Lord of the Rings game, which I did mm-hmm. for Games Workshop. That is a system whereby it's still um, alternating turns, but you can never be sure whether it's going to be AB or BA, if you, if you understand, in any individual turn. So it was a sort of a diced for, it was a, um, uh, it was a who goes first by a dice roll. Um, and the, the the whole the whole idea with um, uh, uh, pulling the uh, dice out of the bag really stems from a system that um, I'm not sure he came up with it, but which Brian Ansell used for um, uh, Battle Masters, a game he did for uh, uh, Milton Bradley mm-hmm. back in the nineties. Oh yeah, I played that as a kid. So right, well, it's got a stack of cards. Yep. And you basically, as you remember, you turn a card and the card says, move this unit or move one of this kind of unit. Um, so, you know, you, you work your way through the stack and each unit takes a turn when its card comes up. There were quite a lot of games that used that system subsequently, um, including some games that Brian Ansell developed himself for Wargames Foundry, which were only ever published on the net. And then um, the a company called uh, Two Fat Lardies, which you may, you may. Have oh heard of. yeah. 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 I mean, I would say yeah, they're, they're up there with you guys, like in terms of like, I would say the most modern types of games. Well, they, they adopted the, or, or, or uh, well, they adopted or co-evolved that. They used this very similar system where you just draw cards and the units take a turn when the card comes up. So that idea of what I'll call an interleaved uh, sequence was already established. And, um, we didn't want something card-driven because we were doing a game for um, Osprey. Osprey Publishing, we're going to publish it. Warlord Games don't publish Bolt Action. Mm-hmm. They um, splice and sit, if you like, to um, Osprey, who then pay royalty to, uh, to uh, uh, Warlord. So it had to be a book. It couldn't be a book with cards. Um, and I th- I think it was Alessio that just hit on the idea of using a dice and pulling a dice that was going to be either a blue dice or a red dice. So blue would go or red would go. And you can imagine how that would work right? without the orders. You just go, is it me next or is it you next? Oh, it's blue or it's red. Oh, it's blue. Just like turning a card would give you blue or a red card to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the idea of then associating 
one of the dice with an order and just putting the dice by the unit just sprang into Alessio's mind as we were playing. And it worked really quite well. Mm -hmm. um, originally, we just had a little chart, numbered one to six. And you put the dice, one, two, three, four, five, six, beside the unit. We didn't have the actual names on the dice. Right. Uh, and at the time, uh, the uh, Osprey were very keen that we have that system so that people could use ordinary dice. But at the time, I thought uh, it was really strong to have that hook, the name of the order on the dice. And uh, Warlord uh, went to the expense and trouble of making the dice. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and you just proved a huge hit. And I think it makes that game, personally. I, mean, I, I agree with you. I completely agree. Like yeah, it does. It's great. It's a really great mechanism. And Alessio should take full credit for it, really. Yeah. So um, is it the is it kind of like the decision making element that you like the most about it? So in terms of, you know, when you're playing an I go, you go game, it's so formulaic. You know when your units are going to move. Everything goes at the same time. Whereas when you're pulling the order dice, there's so many things that you have to sort of think about and prioritize yeah. as you kind of figure out what unit it's going to be. I'll tell you what else as well. It, it works on basic probabilities like any card game. And like a lot of card game, it actually works on what's called Bayesian probability. Mm -hmm. So you've got 12, so let's say, red dice. And I've got 12 red dice. Uh, I've got 12 blue dice. So it's red and blue. You pull a red dice, your chance of now pulling another red dice is less than your chance of pulling a blue dice. You pull a second red dice and their chance, and so on and so forth. Each dice you pull affects the probability of the next pull. So you've got this element of uh, chance that's really quite exciting, particularly when you get to this situation where bizarrely somebody's pulled, let's say, five dice in a row, and suddenly the game's changed because suddenly right. someone else is going to get five dice in a row. So the actual tactics, what you're going to do from one pull, dice pull to the next is affected constantly by the dice that you've just pulled right and that is really clever it i agree you, you you can't yeah you can't make a plan that's um fixed you have to keep a, a degree you have to make a plan but you have to make sure that plan flexes yeah that's, yeah and you can you can sometimes find your plan is upended by a dice pool but not often right. Yeah, it adds, an, it adds an interesting level to the game, too, because I know that Bolt Action has a pretty uh, prominent tournament scene. Now, granted, yeah. like me personally, um, I'm, I'm not a particularly big tournament player, but I always give credit to games where how you design your list. So I know, for, I know, for example, with Bolt Action, figuring out how many units you can actually get into your force to give you more dice. I know that, you know, plays a prominent, you know, sort of role in figuring out like what you're going to take, which I really admire because again, it adds another level of thinking, um, you know, in terms of even before you get on the table, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it does. Um, you can, uh, you can to some extent exploit that. And uh, uh, I know that my, my, I, I play Russians. Oh, okay. And Russians always have lots of dice. Um, well, unless you're going to go for the big tanks and things. Right. Uh, you get the extra dice because you get the extra free unit. 
um, and you also get uh, in, in my case I tend to go for the medics and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and the cheaper units you can get quite cheap quite large units so um, I think I ended up last time I played Alessio I think I ended up uh, sort of like uh, he had Americans and he got for quite an elite force mm-hmm. and I think he was like in sub 10 and I was up in like 20s <laughs> yeah completely yeah so, in that respect. what's it like mm-hmm. playing your own game? I, I with bolt action, I don't feel that it's my game. I mm-hmm. feel that it's Celestia's game. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so I, 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 I don't. I still don't. I don't play it in a very exploitative way. I'm not a very. I'm not really a tournament player. Okay. I've, I've taken part in tournaments. And I have kind of. There's there's a few games where I did get into that mindset, but with. Bolt action, I think it, it plays better um, as a. I think it plays better as the game for which it was designed, which is a company level infantry action with maybe some support and possibly a tank. That's frightening. I think it plays less well when you go to it's a, lots and lots of troops, lots of uh, lots of heavy armor. Um, I think it starts to. I'm not say fall apart, but I think it starts to become cumbersome. Yeah, I think that I think you've hit on a couple of things that it's just funny. Like I've had that same conversation a thousand times with my own group where we literally say the same thing. It's really an infantry game. Now, granted, it's like anything else. I mean, we found ways to sort of modify. So literally yesterday um, we did play a game in which I've never seen so many tanks on the field, like where we had, I think, something like 10 players. And each yeah. player had essentially a tank platoon. And there were like little tricks that my own gaming group uses where, for example, um, when a dice is pulled and it's for your team, every single player moves one unit and you have your own color dice for each player and you take those and kind of put them out. So yeah. like just ways yeah. of speeding things along. But look, I, I think anytime you're playing, I find it's with late war where when you're playing late war and you've got a lot of medium tanks, but those medium tanks are armed with, you know, heavy anti-tank guns or super anti-tank guns, I do find it to be a little bit of a turkey shoot, you know? But that doesn't mean it's not a good game. Um, It just, it doesn't play as well as, you know, like where you've got, you know, five or six infantry squads and you're sort of going at it, you know? That's it. Well, it's a limitation of the overall concept. I mean, the game wasn't designed... uh, at its heart, it wasn't designed for huge games like that. And mm-hmm. It can be adapted. I think that's quite a clever idea, that's a, especially playing with a lot of players on one side. Yeah. And, it, and I, I like what you've done there because that's starting to design a game. Mm-hmm. You, you've got to, you've taken a game and you're actually starting to design a new game. If you see what I mean, using I do know what you element. mean. Yes, I yeah. do know what you mean. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's we've done similar things actually. Mm-hmm. You know, where you pull a dice and it allows you to, to, to essentially move groups of units, yeah, um, uh, rather than the unit. And um, yeah, uh, I've particularly done that for this science fiction version of um, uh, of the game, which I developed called Gates of Antares, mm-hmm. uh, which uses the same system, uh, same core mechanic. Um, but I, I, I and I, I play. I, I did a lot of things with that that kind of messed with the sequencing. Because mm-hmm. it's a science fiction game, and I felt that I could. Yeah, oh, for so sure. World War II game. Yeah. yeah, you always you always you always hit that hard stop of reality when you're playing a historical yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that couldn't possibly happen in a science fiction game. I can just invent a, you know, a MacGuffin. Yeah, and make something happen. 
It's a, it, that's definitely an interesting, um, an interesting thought because on one hand, and I don't know what your feelings are on this, but so I've always had a foot in the sci-fi fantasy world and, the, and a foot in the historical world, right? So with a game like Bolt Action, I very rarely played a game of Bolt Action where things felt imbalanced, right? Because, I mean, ultimately, you know, your troops are mostly armed with the same things. You know, you might have like a different tank here or there. But once you get into the sci-fi fantasy world and you start inventing, you know, all different kinds of cool pieces of technology or strategies or body armor, this or that, um, that's where I've always found you really have to put a lot of thought into scenario design or how you're designing your rules. Yeah, you but do. that's what makes it fun. Um, it makes it fun, actually. And, you know, you can't get it right. It's impossible to get right. Mm-hmm. The more complicated the game in particular, you know, the more detailed it is or the more elements it has, the harder it is to get it right first time. And the chances are you're not going to. Yeah. Um, because even if it plays beautifully for a couple of years, by the end of that time, it's the cunning players will have sussed out ways of adapting that those rules uh, in ways you hadn't quite imagined, mm-hmm. ways you hadn't come across or which hadn't been play tested, and which suddenly either break in elements of the rules or, or which more likely just throw things out of balance. And you just find that, and it's, it's really annoying as a games designer. Well, <laughs> I've always wondered about that. Yeah, no, I always wondered about that. Because um, look, I mean, if you're talking about a rule set like the Sword and the Flame, you know, for which I, I'm not sure if you've ever played like a uh, colonial war gaming or I've heard of it, I've not played it. Oh, it's a wonderful game. Um, you know, with I think it was written in 1979. But like games like that, or for example, certain Napoleonic rule sets where you might have like one or two editions, right? Um, I remember playing Warhammer growing up and wondering how much playtesting is really done. Like, so for example, when a codex comes out, you know, I'm trying to think of some good examples. I mean, I remember um, when third edition came out um, Mm -hmm. for Warhammer 40K. And I remember the Tyranid rulebook coming out um, and a lot of players kind of scratching their heads saying, do you think the rules writers realize how powerful this unit was? You know, so I've always wondered that, like, how much playtesting goes on behind the scenes for these games, like like a Warhammer yeah. or a Warhammer Fantasy? Well, you have to remember that before the world of the uh, internet, you could only playtest either with the people that you were working with mm-hmm. or your friends and uh, or in, in some cases, trusted out-of-house groups. So war games clubs and what have you. Mm-hmm. And what happened against Workshop was that the, the the things you were working on became so sensitive because you were working, let's say you're working on a new edition of Warhammer. You'd have to be working on that new edition of Warhammer at least a year before it came out mm-hmm. and probably more like 18 months or so. And it, as time went on, it became necessary that the business have more predictability. We had to work further and further ahead. So right. we were getting to the situation where we were starting to develop a new version of the game pretty much as soon as the previous version had come out. You know, um, we'd, if the version had come out, we'd then be doing the codexes for it or whatever. Uh, a lot of them had already been done. Probably a year in, we'd be looking seriously at doing a new version of the game, which would then come out three years later. Right. So you couldn't involve people in outside playtest groups 
because the minute anyone got hold of the information that there's going to be a new version, no one bought the previous version, which had only been out for a year or two years. Right. And our own sales staff in the shops were the worst offenders. The minute the <laughs> sales staff knew that there was a new version of the game coming out, they wouldn't sell the old one. Mm-hmm. They just stopped selling it. It's like, well, there's no point in buying that because there's a new one coming out. Right. Like, your, jo- your livelihood depends on selling this game, my friend. <laughs> right. But they wouldn't. So it, it became uh, almost paranoid about information getting out, about what was coming out, either right. in terms of new codexes, new games, or whatever. So, so let me ask you then. Oh, I'm sorry, Brett, go ahead. I was going to say, and consequently, that meant that all the playtesting had to be done in the house. Gotcha. So it was all the game within the game, within the building, by the development staff and their friends, but, you know, right. friends within the business. So, so then uh, what I'm wondering is working for such a big company like that as a game designer, did you find that when you were working on games, did you find that the rules changes and the things that you were trying to do to make a better game, was that driven more by the need to have a better game or was it driven more by the sales side or the corporate side? Uh, Yeah. I mean, ultimately the reason we created Warhammer was to sell models. Right. Citadel Miniatures was a miniatures company. Um, and I joined uh, in 1982. And at that time, I think Brian Ansell, who was running Citadel Miniatures, um, he had an ambition to publish a, uh, well, at the time, it was almost like a role-playing game, but a, a, a game that used multiple miniatures rather than individual figures like mm-hmm. in a role-playing environment. So he was looking at publishing something like a traditional war game. Um, now, myself and Richard Halliwell, my friend Richard Halliwell, had co-written a game called Reaper uh, some years before, as well as other science fiction games, in fact. And Reaper was a uh, a, a fantasy war game, uh, very much in the same sort of style of, I would say it's Warhammer, but uh, it... It actually used a percentage system, so it was quite a, a bit more modern at the time. It was in the mm-hmm. late 70s that came out. So I had a track record, and how I, Richard Halliwell had a, a track record as well. Um, and um, I, I, I think Brian just wanted that game to come out. So it was a, um, it was always a commercial, uh, commercial, um, commercially driven game. I mean. I mean yeah, we wanted it to be the best game it could possibly be. Also, we quite liked being paid at the end of the month. Sure. And we're talking about a time when no, nowadays people get jobs as games designers. In my day, there were no such things as jobs as games designers. <laughs> you could not get it. That was, that was laughable. I didn't join Games Workshop, Citadel Adventures as it was. Right. To be a games designer, I actually joined to run the mail order. And in doing the mail order, I put together all promotional sheets. And one of the promotional ideas was let's get this idea off the ground to do a, 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 a proper war, set of war games rules. So it grew out of that. Um, and you, you have to remember that most little war games companies at the time were just two guys in their back room. Some, I mean, one chap I knew, he had a casting machine in his kitchen. And when he used to cast toy soldiers, he had to put a black, he had to put it like a sheet. <laughs> over his cooker and over his fridge because when he cast the figures metal went everywhere right <laughs> yeah you know, i mean it, it was it was real it was called cottage industry but it really was like that it wasn't it wasn't a proper 
point it wasn't really um any way of making a living right um and it attracted people who were otherwise un unemployable on the whole um so i mean all, uh, all, all credit to him i think brian ansell saw the potential for it to become more than that right uh, quite early on um on the back of dnd really uh, because that meant there was a massive interest all of a sudden amongst youngsters teenagers right. and college students in gaming uh, and um you know so it, it's always been commercial so that that tension you talk about mm -hmm. you that that's the trick you have to have you have to what you have to you have to go this has to be the best possible game it can be and i want a job at the end of the month so right. we have to sell toy soldiers if we don't if we create a game that's fantastic but it doesn't sell any toy soldiers we're all going to be out on the street so it has to support sales right now the balance there uh is the trick and i think that was something i was pretty good at that was my if, if you like that was kind of where i uh, had a, I don't say unique skill, but it probably was my core skill rather than games design. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I enjoyed the games design. It's great fun. Right. But really, my biggest contribution to Games Workshop was creating a game and the game's universe within a commercial environment. Gotcha. And 40K is a better example of that than Warhammer because by the time I came around to doing 40K, I'd learned how the background stories in a fancy environment the background stories were quite limiting because you had a geography and although in my mind it never mattered because i was an ancient war gamer by tradition and ancient war gamers don't really mind which if, if you play romans against ancient egyptians mm -hmm. no no ancient war game i know only plays within the historical period right so were you playing wrg yeah in the 70s I was, yeah. Um, That's how you started in gaming? No, I started with um, Charles Grant's Battle, which was a oh, game. Oh, that is a classic. You know you know the game? Oh, yeah. World War Two, World War Two, and uh, sort of World War Two. It's it, it kind of, yeah. He, he, he describes it as a kind of, in rather generic terms, it's a World War Two-ish game in which you can collect almost anything. Um, and in many ways, it's like Bolt Action. And when we did Bolt Action, Battle is what I had in the back of my mind. You can perhaps see the similarities in scale. Yeah, for sure. Well, Charles Grant is just a luminary figure. I mean, yeah. for me, see, I'm weird in the sense that, but then again, like thinking about the way you got into gaming as well, I started as a historical war gamer. So my father, um, who still plays today, um, I can remember being very young, you know, watching him painting, you know, 15 mil Napoleonics on the dining table right. and seeing yeah. those books, like the Charles Grant book, um, um, the book Charge. Um, yeah, but you know, you. yeah, so yeah. I mean, I can remember seeing all of that stuff. And so I started as a historical war gamer and then, of course, walked into the comic store one day and was like, what is yeah, this Warhammer stuff? And yeah, we it's saw, so, so mind-blowing. I know. When I started, uh, which would be 1970, 71, I think, 71, mm -hmm. um, there there was no such thing as fantasy wargaming. Uh, they, they, you couldn't buy fantasy models or science fiction models. Mm -hmm. uh, wargaming was historical wargaming. But as kids, um, and I would be 12, I guess, 
maybe 11 or 12. As kids, we'd grown up surrounded by um, kind of World War II as a, as a, as a narrative, mm-hmm. as, an, as, as, a, as a kind of adventure and everything. No one of my generation didn't know the caliber of a rifle bullet or what color uniforms the various combatants wore or you know, the, the, uh, uh, the characteristics of Spitfires and, uh, uh, and, and Lancaster bombers or Mark IV tanks or whatever. It, it was just part of the culture. Um, and if you think about all the war films that came out in the 60s, mm-hmm. it really, it, it was just big. And I mean, I was, I was only, the, the war hadn't been over 14 years when I was born. So my parents had lived through it, and they, mm-hmm. as kids themselves, in fact, as teenagers, and um, so it, it was very much in the, uh, in, the in, in the popular conscience. So playing World War Two games, and even historical war games broadly, wasn't weird for kids who'd grown up playing with toy soldiers. It was right. it was just a step, you know, it's a step forward from those little. I think in America you had like marks, didn't you? Little, yeah. But I think you're touching on you're touching on something that American war gamers talk about all the time, like how Mm. we're very much envious of the kinds of gaming communities that you have in England. I mean, where you'll get 20 or 30 or 40 people to a, you know, a game club, you know, event and how regularized game clubs are. I mean, don't get me wrong. We have those in the United States and we have gaming conventions and conferences and things like that. But there is just something about the gaming community in England um, and parts of Europe, too, that are just very different than what we have here in the States. Sure, I do know that. I mean, I've been I've been over to America a few times. And, uh, uh, of course, we used to have our, um, I still do as far as I know, uh, games workshop in, well, it was in Baltimore. I think. It oh, yeah. Too. Yes, sir. Yep. Yep. Yeah, um, we used to. Yes, you have Games Day there as well. I went over a few times. Yeah, that was always fun. It was, yeah, yeah. And my, my friend John Stallard, who was sales um, director at Games Workshop when I was um, a product development director, he he um, used to run the US business mm-hmm. for a good, good few years. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, gotcha. so I'm kind of aware of how it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? it, it you're right. It, it, the, uh, I think... To a large extent, it's because of that great, um, I say explosions are an inappropriate word, but it's an explosion in interest in uh, historical wargaming, which happened in Britain in the 1960s mm-hmm. and was largely a result of publishing by Charles Grant, um, uh, Brigadier Peter Young and Donald Featherstone. Mm-hmm. Donald Featherstone being the, the biggest contributor in a way because he wrote so many books and they all went into public libraries. And at the time... Every public library had the Donald Featherston books, uh, which you know, starting with War Games, which I think is 1964. I think you're right. Yeah, sounds it's, that sounds right. That, yeah, and then you know, Advanced War Games, Aerial War Games, Naval War Games, dot dot dot. You know, he just churned them out. Yeah, uh, right up until the 80s, in fact. Uh, yeah, and he used to he used to actually run a, what he called a magazine, but it was really a fanzine. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would have liked the term fanzine. It's all an old-fashioned gin. <laughs> that is a pretty <laughs> modern term. <laughs> well, it became a term in the seventies, and yeah. uh, by then, uh, Williams Newsletter, which was his magazine, had been running for oh gosh, I don't. It started. It started in the early sixties, and I've got a whole load of upstairs, which I, I've kind of gone back and collected, mm-hmm. and they're all um, what do you call it? They're, they're like black and white sheets. Do you have Ronio, like black copied or gazetted? Mm-hmm. Sort of thing, wet copy, 
stapled together. Gotcha. Uh, and then sent through the post. Did you play D&D as well when you were... Briefly. 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 Um, D&D, when it came out, it was interesting because my friends and I had already started to play fantasy war games, largely based around Lord of the Rings, but also mm-hmm. Conan, you know, Hyboria. And there are a few model ranges started to come out. Um, Minch figurines brought out a Middle-earth range, and then later they brought out a Hyborian range. Garrison brought out a, a, a what they call a sword and sorcery range, which was based on Hyboria, and later Hinchcliffe did one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so suddenly there were these fantasy miniatures, and, and people were going crazy. There was a great schism in the wargaming world. A lot of historical wargamers, they turned their nose up at all this sort of thing. Oh, there horrible. still is. I mean, there's absolutely... There is, I think, amongst older players, maybe, but... It, there certainly, um, at the time, it was really quite a, a thing, particularly in the, there was, there was only one War Games magazine in Britain at the time called Battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the pages of that, mag- the letter pages would be full of people who were outraged about fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but my friends and I were, we, we really, we loved it. And we were mid, young to mid-teenagers. Mm-hmm. So we weren't part of that established wargaming circle, if you see what I mean. We were a bit too young. Right. So we'd already started to play fancy games, and we'd already started to play um, skirmish war games uh, with characters which had a big role-playing element. Um, there was a set of skirmish rules that came out in the, I suppose it'd be mid-'70s, um, called the Wild West Skirmish Rules. Um, mm-hmm. And they were very influential because although they were for cowboys, Cowboys and Indians, right? Um, they, um, they, they, mechanically, they were quite detailed, which appealed to us as teenagers because teenagers love detail, and they were mechanically quite complex. And again, we didn't mind because we were teenagers; we were quite happy to sit there doing percentile maths all day, um, which is what you had to do. Um, but what it did was it enabled you to take a character, give him a name. And then taking through an adventure, at the end of the adventure, he had wounds to deal with. He might, he might require more money to buy things. You can upgrade your gun. You can, and you can perhaps earn some skill, specific skills. Well, that's role-playing up to a point. You always had a model, and it was always the adventures were always enacted out as little war, skirmish war games. But that was a kind of role-playing. So we were already doing that when D&D came out. Mm-hmm. So, and as being the precocious teenagers, well, precocious, probably, being the rather arrogant teenagers, <laughs> we thought that D&D slightly had taken, stolen our thunder. Mm-hmm. You know, we felt we'd be getting there. You know, this was something that we, and we always dreamed of publishing because you did in those days. You have to remember, 1970s, no such thing as the internet. You can't desktop publish. Every, if you're going to print, it's hard. You know, it's camera-ready copy. Mm-hmm. If you're a teenager, what do you know about that? Nothing, you know. So, uh, you know, we dreamed of it, as well as dream of making your own toy soldiers. I, I, and I didn't start out writing rules. I started out making toy soldiers. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Would you do it in your home? Uh, yeah, on my parents' back table, I think. I was uh, making um, uh, figures out of plasticine mm-hmm. and then uh, making uh, 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 copying them in plaster mold, 
which is an interestingly dangerous process. <laughs> right. There's always a little bit of danger in innovation, though, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, you clamp a plaster mold together, use elastic bands or something, get your mum's best saucepan, melt some lead in it on the kitchen stove. Nothing dangerous about this. Oh, sure. <laughs> and pour it into the mold. If there was any moisture in the mold, it would spit back out at you. And also, if you then got a little bit of metal onto the elastic band that's holding the whole thing together, the elastic band just goes like that. <laughs> <laughs> explodes and you end up with metal all over the place. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah, so I did a bit of that home casting whatever. And I actually sold a few designs later on, but I was yeah. never, I never really became a very accomplished sculptor and I gave it up when I joined Get Workshop. Mm-hmm. Before that, I was designing 15 millimeter figures actually. Yeah, well, fifteens are great. I think it's it's one of my favorite skills um, to, yeah, to game I, with. We we found that we did some way way back. We did some um, experimentation with fifteen mils at Kane's Workshop uh, at Citadel, and what we found was that they were almost as expensive to produce as twenty eight mm-hmm. mil figures. Mm-hmm. You couldn't charge very much for them. Right. So they, I think I think it was Brian who did the whole experiment. Mm-hmm. So in the end, we just decided, you know, there's no point. Just, yeah. It, it was just a road into into hide into nothing. Yeah, you know what's funny? You're probably going to laugh at me, but I'm I'm literally sitting in my office here and I'm looking at the epic Warhammer 40k stuff that I've been buying on eBay as of oh, late. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably one of my favorite scales that 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 anything Games Workshop ever did. It's just yeah, so we, cool, you know. Well, when we started that, we had a real bro- problem casting it. Well, I can imagine. It. Yeah, it, it was, and in fact, over time. The designs got more and more s- simple and slabby, mm-hmm. but I think some of the really the nicest figures were designed by Mark Copperston in the oh yeah eighties late eighties miniatures yeah yeah absolutely beautiful little more than I've got a few of those as well he makes some historical stuff too right oh he makes all sorts of yeah, yeah 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 I've seen his stuff I don't know if I own any of his figures though but I know of him so very nice clean style he did a lot yeah. for War Games. Foundry? Yes, Wargames Foundry. Yeah. Because their main designer apart from the Perry twins for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I love their miniatures, uh Wargames Foundry. They're great. Yeah, they're a bit old fashioned now because they haven't really had a um, modern designer for a long time. Um, yeah. Uh, when, but um they uh, and, and in fact they're they're run by Brian Ansell. I mean that's that's his that's the company he set up when he left Games Workshop. Yeah. Well you know what's interesting, like in talking to a number of different gamers, because look, you know, if you're talking about um, modern miniature design, I don't know, like there is something to be said about that, that I don't know if, if I would rather use the word almost like classic style of miniature making. Because look, I mean, the Games Workshop stuff that's being put out now is unbelievable, literally unbelievable, like the amount of detail that goes into them. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just me, but like, if I were buying those, I feel like I would break them on the miniatures table and go moving stuff <laughs> yeah. around, you know? They're just well, well, almost yeah. too detailed. Yeah, what they've done there is they've chased, they've chased the commercial um, objective rather over the game. I mean, the game, it didn't help that um, the chap that was running Games Workshop for a long time, Tom Kirby, he didn't believe that people played the games. He mm-hmm. was convinced that people just collected the models. And that's... Um, I, 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 it's just madness. I think they, mm-hmm. all the things work together. It, 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 every element works together and strengthens every other element. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't believe that. And one of the things that 
you have to bear in mind is when you make a model kit, it's a frame. Really what you're making is that frame, little plastic frame. If the frame fits onto a, it's uh, a, 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 a mold of a certain size and it runs on a machine of a certain size, the chunk of plastic that comes out will cost a certain amount. And there's an optimum size that you can then charge an optimum amount of money for. And the problem was that the amount of cost compared to the amount of uh, value was only was, was greatest for things like tanks. Mm-hmm. They were the most uh, profitable, i.e. the highest margin you could get. You, one frame could be sold for this amount of money. If you put the same amount of effort into making a frame for goblins, you'd have 10 goblins that you couldn't sell for anything like because people looked at the goblins and went, well, there are only 10 goblins. They're not very good in the game. This tank's right. fantastic. <laughs> right. So what Games Workshop did was they thought, right, well, every ga- everything we make has to be a tank. Everything has to be a big thing that's highly detailed and which is fantastically powerful in terms of the game. So they moved away from one of a fancy battle where you might need a unit of 50 models to make a unit of goblins. Mm-hmm. My, my old third edition Warhammer armies have got these massive units of goblins in because I love goblins. <laughs> of course. I mean, who, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> but you have to pay, a, even at the time, it was an expensive way of getting an army together yeah. because 50 goblins was quite an expensive, even though I no, got for sure. 50% discount or sneaked along to the, um, uh, uh, when they had a sale in the shop. You know, it, it, it was quite an expensive way of doing it. Where nowadays, nobody even thinks of it. They just make the great big avatar kind of models. Yep. And, and, you know, the space marines, space marines have suddenly become these big space marines. They're called, I don't know what they're called. They're called something yeah. Like Again, I don't know if I'm, if I'm too much of a purist, but it's, I don't know, to me, well, first off, let me back up for a second. I love the Warhammer universe. So it's like when you were talking earlier about like, I guess maybe people behind the scenes thinking about what draws people in. For me, it's always been the universe. So, yeah. um, so, and, but that's what I mean. It's like a little bit funny to see some of these new space marine models. And don't get me wrong. I get it. They want to make money, but like seeing those intercessor Marines that are 50 millimeters tall. I don't know. Maybe I'm too much of a purist. I don't know how you feel about it, but yeah, no, I don't like it, but um, that's nothing. It, it's not my bag anymore. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I hear you. I, I start batting on and other people have to do it. And they have to make a living as well. And I'm quite right, you know, and all that. So, you know, if they yeah. feel that's the best thing to do, it's the best thing to do. Yeah. But from a creative point of view. Yeah. I, I really, I enjoyed creating the Warhammer world and I yeah. think it had lots and lots of, le- I, I think I could have, I could have recreated that world in a way that would enable Games Workshop to exploit it more financially, right. effectively, without doing what they did. I think what they did was clumsy. Yeah. I did it after I'd left them, so I can't really comment on it. Um, yeah. I, I think it was all underway while I was there. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess, again, like they just wanted to kind of expand and be able to create new models, I'm assuming. Yeah, and they wanted to be able to create models that uh, uh, were relatively big and which were cost-effective for them yeah. to make. Well, if we um, back up for a sec, uh, Rick, could you tell me a little bit about what it was like to sit down? I mean, did you do it pen and paper, like in terms of creating the, the Warhammer universe? Oh, gosh, no. Um, they, they want me, I, no, I think I just sat down and bashed it all out. You, you, 
I, I, I can't honestly remember exactly how it happened. I mean, me and, originally I was working in the corner of the factory doing the um, mail order. So I was opening the post, booking in all the mail order, running around, putting things in boxes, um, and also putting together the mail order um, office sheets every single month. Together with Tony Ackland, Tony Ackland drew all the little pictures. Do you know, all the on the early games, oh, that's cool. all the catalogs, all little pictures. Tony Ackland drew right. drew all those, and Tony uh, would then paste up all of the uh, all of the information, send it off to the printers. I would generally type it. And I I I think originally Brian had imagined that Tony would do all of the. Um, I say typing. I, we had a word processor which we. Mm -hmm. splashed out on it was an old rank xerox 860 and you know you can think of it in terms of a, a word application or something like that although it was much much more primitive and very exciting really mm -hmm. but for its time it was quite advanced and it just happened that tony tony he could sort of type if he's you know to bash 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 but i could <laughs> type my mother was a short-time typist mm -hmm. we had a we had a um, typewriter at home, and for years, because I was I was really driven by this idea of publishing. I'd been typing up war games rules for me and my friends, um, so I had quite a bit of experience of that just typing. Um, so I got to do. I ended up doing all of that, um, and that's the main reason I probably ended up writing Warhammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Tony was there doing the drawings and the production, and I just typed it. And what we'd do, uh, I mean, the original Warhammer was actually written by Richard Halliwell, the set of rules, but there was no background in it. So what I did was, I think I just invented lots of stories just to support some of the things we were doing, particularly the Regiments of Renown. Oh, sure. The, Remember yeah, those. Okay, well, the first ones we did, um, I just had to invent a little story to, to sell them. And Brian was, when we, I think it must have been Brian Ansell who came up with the idea of doing regiments of renown. And I, I seem to remember it would be Brian who said, every regiment of renown has to have, you know, a leader, a musician, a standard bearer, and a champion. Okay. They have to have names. Okay. No problem, Brian. And they have to have a war cry. Which I found off. Other than that, you know, go for it. So I said, oh, okay. And I've got these six or seven of them to do to start with, I think, in the first batch. And me and Tony would just go, oh, God, we've got these to do. What should we call them? Oh, I don't, well, then we just bash, we just go, oh, we're calling this, how we call that? And we just joke names about. And we'd come up with something. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I, between us, we'd get an idea that would just spark. And I'd say, yeah, that's okay. That's enough. I can do that. And I'd write it all up. Usually a little bit of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, you know. Uh, it's always a little bit grubby and a bit tongue in cheek. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. You give them. A, give them a, everyone's got to have a battle cry. Oh God! I don't know. What are these orcs going to go? Oh, I don't know. Oh, how about just oh, wah! That'll do. <laughs> Off it went. And while the orcs became a <laughs> iconic after that, didn't it? <laughs> but that was how it was done. You know, we just bashed it out, um, and then it started to coalesce as I just wrote the different stories. It started to coalesce, and we created or reference names of places and reference, you know, uh, things like that. And I, 
And we had to support the range at the time, and the range included some Norse and it included medieval type figures and it included some slightly more renaissance figures. And as we just created things like the Empire and Britonia and Norska, as I called it at the time. Mm-hmm. Norska at the time was a brand of underarm deodorant. <laughs> yeah, but I called it more. Right. <laughs> um, so all we did was created places to put the models that we made. Um, and you know, even theoretically, we created Nippon and so on and so forth, but mm-hmm. we never really exploited that. Right. Um, so the Warhammer world was created out of that expediency, that need to find homes for all of these models. And then um, once we'd sort of started to develop the the background a bit, um, it kind of coalesced. Uh, I don't, you know. I, how much of it did I invent? How much was just, you know, discussions in the pub or mm-hmm. people chipping? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think it really started to take form until uh, and it was when I started Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And I say I started, but Richard Halliwell wrote the original script for that. Yeah. That's a phenomenal yeah. game, by the way. That and Dark yeah, Heresy. Yeah, well... Uh, uh, it's funny, really, because by the time we wrote Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, I think what a role-playing was, it was starting to take a back seat. But it gave us an opportunity to really flesh out the worlds. Yeah. Um, and we simultaneously, it, it, it's just when that game was almost finished that we employed um, some XTSR staff, hmm. including uh, Phil Gallagher, uh, Jim Bambra, uh, Mike Brunton who were real role players and they took Warhammer role, uh, fancy role play and the ideas and they created some fantastic scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, they re- really got their teeth into it. And I think the reason why it was such a popular game and still revered to this day in many ways is because of the work they did rather than the mechanical work that I did. I mean, I think me and Hal laid the background, if you like, the, the, the bottom course of the wall, <laughs> the foundations, mm-hmm. but the work itself, the work was largely done by those guys. Um, it's, I've always found it fun to pair up role-playing with miniature gaming. So, mm-hmm. um, for, for example, um, I used to work at a school called Hackley, which is a, a private independent school in New York. And one of my, my best friends that I worked with who was an English teacher. So I'm a history teacher. He's an English teacher. We actually designed a whole course about role play gaming, like where essentially what the kids do is they kind of come into the class and they take on the role of a character. And we pl- basically play um, Dungeons and Dragons and yeah. intersperse different ideas in there that a lot of times kids wouldn't want to talk about, but now that they're playing a character, now all of a sudden talking about hot button topics in today's world, like gender or slavery or really serious topics. Now all of a sudden it's a little bit more comfortable for them. But what we did was we actually ran a summer program with a lot of those students. And what we basically had them do was we had them role play their characters and that informed the miniatures battles that they were going to end up playing which was yes. really a lot of a lot of fun because then all of a sudden it's not just that you're sitting around with a bunch of friends playing a miniatures game now all of a sudden you're you're actually informing like why that battle is being fought and how it's going to be fought and what the repercussions are like cuz your characters are going to have to live in that world after that battle's over so i've always enjoyed doing that and i think a lot of people do that with 
Warhammer Fantasy Battle and then kind of pairing it up with, um, you know, the actual role-playing game. So Yeah, well, I, uh, when we did the mechanics for the role-playing game, I kind of based them off the mechanics for the uh, uh, Fantasy Battle game. So mm-hmm. the stat would be the same stat, but times 10, typically. Yeah. And then there were some additional stats and things like that. Yeah. So there was an, an element which um, uh, enabled you to go from one to the other fairly easily. Yeah. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, the first game that me and my friend Richard Halliwell wrote uh, together, Reaper, worked exactly like that because mm-hmm. it was a percentile system. Yeah. When you got groups of figures fighting, you could you could basically add the percentiles up. Yeah. So if you got ten men with fifty percent chance, it could become a five. Mm-hmm. You know, fifty times ten is five hundred equals five hits, sort of thing. Yeah. So um, it, you could move from one to the other effortlessly. Um, yeah. And you know it's you funny. Could do that to some yeah. You know what I think about all the time is just something as simple as uh, like in terms of the Warhammer style games. And how much they've informed, you know, the gaming world today. Rolling to hit, rolling to wound, rolling to save. I mean, yeah. I don't know how many games were really like that before Fantasy Battle, right? Yeah, not many. Uh, the, the re- yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, again, crawl credit to Brian Ansell. When, we, when, when he, he actually asked Richard Halliwell to write the core cool game, which Hal did, and the, um, he specified that it had to use D6s mm-hmm. because as far as he was concerned, most youngsters, which is the core market for the models, you know, uh, teenagers, really, didn't have access to the funny polyhedral dice that the uh, role players did, and they were mm-hmm. they were expensive as well in the UK. Yeah. Um, but you could always raid your Monopoly set to get your D6s. Right. Um, so it had to be D6 driven. Well, that game that uh, Hal and I wrote initially, Reaper, used. D100s, mm-hmm. but you made a roll to hit, and then you made a roll to see what the effect of that hit would be. Yeah. So it was a percentage to hit, which was modified, quite detailed, and then a roll to see what the effect is, which was modified in a quite detailed way, including by the armor of the person mm-hmm. who hit. What Hal did, we took that same system, but there wasn't enough room in the D6s to make all the modifiers, or even the basic modifiers. So we added in the extra stage. Mm-hmm. which was the save. Well, the saving throw is an old-fashioned tra- traditional war games role that you find in most Donald Fenston mm-hmm. uh, games. And in fact, in, in his first book, in the, the Ancient Rules, which were written by Tony Bath, you have exactly that system. You have a roll to hit, and then you have a saving throw based on armor. So all Hal did was he, he, he turned our Reaper system, which is a two-stage to hit to kill, into a three-stage to hit to kill, to save. Yeah. And the nice thing about it was that you've got that, I roll the dice, pick out the dice, hand them over to save. So there's an element of toing and throwing. You're both involved in the dice rolling, which um, I, I don't think Hal thought about deliberately, mm-hmm. but which by happenstance is a really nice mechanic. Um, it's, it's, very, it's very pleasing to do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, but at the time, the idea of having D six driven systems was seen as old fashioned. Yeah. Most were um, fact factor systems with a modifier, like the WRG system, yeah, or um, percentile systems. But simply giving that brief forced us to go down that route. Yeah. Um, mm. 
Well, and I, I mean, coming back full circle, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation where we were talking about bolt action and pulling dice and things along those lines. I mean, look, you know, I don't know if I don't know if you've ever been in a situation before, but look, there are certain kinds of games out there where if you're not if you're not incorporating the other side, the other player into what's happening on your own turn. And if the rules are written poorly, I mean, you could be sitting there for a half hour doing nothing while, yeah, you know, the, your opponent's doing exactly anything. the argument. Yeah, that, yeah, that's why the you go, I go became so unpopular. And it yeah. was made unpopular by Games Workshop doing a very poor job, in my opinion, mm-hmm. of expressing that I go, you go system. Yeah. If it's expressed badly, such that somebody's spending half an hour taking their turn and the other guy might as well go off to the bar or, you know, yeah. leave the table, then... You haven't got a great game, right? Uh, well, the other, argument would be that that's, yeah. that's that's poor. That's poor expression of the rule. That's that's badly written game. That's well, then here's the other problem, though, Rick. As well is mm. you know, if you kind of take that, and then all of a sudden you have armies that are kind of imbalanced. I can't yeah. tell you how many times you know when I was really playing a lot of of Warhammer, um, probably in the late '90s, early 2000s, where you know if you have an army that shoots really well and you've got a really savvy player where it's like, oh, I know exactly how to build this army and you don't get the first turn. I mean, I, yeah. I saw armies get tabled on turn one, you know, um, and yeah. I have to give them credit. Like, I, I always kind of say this with my own friends. Like, I, I find, like, it's easy to kind of knock Games Workshop, like the modern version of Games Workshop. But I don't know. It does seem, even though the models look a little funny these days, at least it's more more playable. Like I don't hear that many type of stories nowadays, like that I experience, you know, as one of their players, kind of growing up, you know. Well, uh, I, I don't really know much about it, but I do know that uh, the chief games designer for the last few years, in fact, from the Age of Sigmar, certainly, mm-hmm. was um, Jervis Jervis Johnson. Yeah, sure. And Jervis is a very competent games designer and a very good. Um, He's a very good mechanics man. Uh, he, he's a great board game player. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that he was given an almost impossible brief when he did the first um, Age of Sigmar. He's yeah. left Games Workshop now. So yeah. um, we, and we actually have been playing war games together. I was going to say, uh, where is he now? He's, he's retired. Oh, okay. And he lives, and he lives in um, uh, a, a, a village just outside Nottingham. It's on the other oh, side. Oh, so near you. Oh, that's great. So what do you guys We're play? We're all near us. We're all near us, mate. Yeah, no, that's really cool. <laughs> I mean, Warlord Games is in just down the road, within about ten minutes of me. Uh, yeah, Games Workshop. In fact, Warlord Games is next to Games Workshop, which is right, in which many ways. is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, the Perrys don't have a shop, but they have a, a, a an office in central Nottingham, and they work from home. Yeah, but they live in Nottingham. I mean, I my I think most of my war gaming is either done either at the Perrys or at John Stollard's house, which is yeah, just by the castle. Yeah. Um, even you know guys like um, uh, Nigel Stillman, he lives in. He, he wrote many of the books for Warhammer yeah. in the third, fourth editions. Yeah, he's just he's just around. I mean, it, it, it's a fairly small world to be honest. It is, yeah, for sure. Well, especially in England, again, like um, everything is. It always seems to me that you know you have all these interesting people that you know even if you live in a different city, you're only an hour away or for, or like a train yeah. ride away, you know. Yeah, uh, well, it's, even in England, people say the middle, this particular area, they call it the lead belt. Mm-hmm. And it's the area around Nottingham Derby. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where you get a, there are just disproportionate amount of war games companies. Yeah. And it's because it's where Brian Ansell set up uh, Citadel Games Workshop. 
Yeah. So people who have come to Games Workshop, often from abroad, have then set up game. They've, they've often married uh, locally, or and they've set up companies. So Alessio Cavatori runs Riverhorse Games. Right. But he's he's here in Nottingham. Right. Um, and uh, in fact, he lives around the corner from the Perrys. Right. 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 So um, what are you so, what are you and Jervis Johnson playing these days? Like casually. Jervis has, uh, has written a new game that's a bit like Black Powder, which is funny because me and Jervis wrote Black Powder. Mm-hmm. He, it, it's kind of like a second bite of the cherry at the Black Powder idea. So a, sim- a simple set of rules, if you like. He was trying to deliberately get them onto um, about half a dozen pages. Mm-hmm. It's called Valor and Fortitude for Napoleonics. I have heard of that. Yeah, that came out very recently, right? It was done as a free set of rules with All Games Illustrated. Right. Yeah, I knew I knew that name. You know, it's funny. It's so hard finding, not only finding a good Napoleonic rule set, but a good Napoleonic rule set that people will play. It's just, it's like finding the Holy Grail, at least for me. I don't know about how you and your own friends feel, but. Uh, Well, we always, Napoleonic is is Alan Perry's big thing. Yeah. So he's got massive armies. So when we play a Napoleonic game, Alan will organize everything, mm-hmm. he'll set the table up, he'll determine the armies and provide them. Yeah. As well as the beer, if you're lucky. And he um he has a table that's fourteen feet by six. That's a good table. And we'll always have three or four people on each side. And we'll play a game. There's no points values, there's no nothing like that. He'll create a scenario. Yeah. And that's how I play Napoleon. So we use black powder for that. Um, yeah. For that well, kind of large scale game that works. Yeah. Really well. I mean, look, it works really well. I ran, um, yeah, it's hard to remember exactly what year it was. Um, at, probably like three or four years ago, I ran a massive Borodino game, the largest yeah. game I've ever run. It was in, it was written up in War Games Illustrated. That's when um, okay. Next Gen had just kind of started, like in terms of like me running a game club at Hackley and then starting to do it at other like places like libraries and stuff like that. But it was a massive game in 15 millimeter. I think we had something like 30 players. And when I was looking for a rule set, um, whatever you want to say about black powder, because I know it's like anything else, you know, you always have your detractors and things like that. It's a smooth game and it's streamlined. And if you have some people that have never played before, um, the mechanics are very easy to pick up and the kids picked it up fast and they had, an absolute blast. So huge yeah. credit, you know. You need a good umpire for either a good umpire or the people playing need to be good friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is very true. Yeah. Well, yeah. look, anytime you have one of those games where you have to roll two dice to see if your unit activates, yeah, you have to have the right personality yeah. for, for that. Well, you also have to say what you're going to do. Yes. And that, it, it, and so yeah, there has to be mutual understanding about what you mean. Yes. So it's a consensual game in that sense. Yeah, for you know? sure. So, and, and people often don't play the black powder exactly as it's intended because they don't they don't quite give orders in the way in which mm-hmm. you're supposed to. They'll often yeah. be a little bit loose or they'll um, sometimes uh, they, they sometimes do the thing you're not supposed to do, which is um, give a, a, a conditional order. Yeah. Oh, I'll do this, but if I get so many orders, I'll do that. Yeah. Well, you're not really supposed to do that. You're supposed to go. You want them to do this thing. You roll yeah. a dice, and then they'll do that thing to the extent that they can, as allowed by the dice. Yeah. And that that does. You do have to be or, not just honest, but you know, openly honest about mm-hmm. uh, 
I was, I'm, I'm sorry, a little bit. Yeah, it's funny too. Um, the best compliments I can give black powder is how manageable it is if you do want to make modifications. I, I don't know if there's yeah. a rule set out there that's as good for doing exactly that. Yeah, what we have to do again, it's one of those things where the rules were driven by the um the requirement rather than by some sort of ideal. Um mm-hmm. the uh you know, we were playing big Napoleonic games, uh, which we weren't getting finished. I think we were using oh, what were you using? I, f- I forget off the top of my head. Um, but it was, uh, you know, a traditional set, and we weren't getting into range of each other by midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, so Black Powder came out of that, but we were also using it to play colonial war games mm-hmm. and um, early 18th century American War of Independence. Again, that's one of Alan's big things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and various Victorian era uh, games. Um, so it, it had to be very... We had, we had to have a set of rules that you could go, all right, well, for this game, let's change this because we're going to be using weapons which are more effective or you've got the, these particular things to take into account. Um, yeah, and, and it's... It just worked, um, and I think it still does. You know, it's a very, very. It holds up very well, and it's been out for a long time now. Yeah, it has. I mean, again, probably more than ten years, I think. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Easily. I was still out. I was still working at Workshop when it came out. Yeah, because um, we had to get special permission to um, for John to publish it. Yeah, because Jervis and I were still working against Workshop. Yeah, and we'd written that game originally to be published by uh, Warhammer Historical War Games. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, Warhammer Historical War Games was, let's say, um, I don't think the management were particularly favorable to it. It was, it was not, a good it was game. It was a good game, though. Oh, yeah. I thoroughly no, enjoyed it. Yeah. 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 It, was a, I, it, it was one of those things which uh, I felt that uh, there was some very good work done. In many ways, Warhammer Ancient Battles rejuvenated large-scale ancient wargaming. Yeah. I say large Twenty-five mil, twenty-eight mil. Yeah, no, for sure. I get what you mean. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, there was a lot of people because I, I went to a lot of the HMGS conventions growing up, you know. So like Fallen and Cold Wars and Historicon, and there was always a tournament, um, you know, being held. And you'd usually get like ten or twelve players, which is always a good sign, you know. So yeah, it's still played. Yeah, um, but of course, people don't like to play a game that they see as being not supported. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So, Rick, what are you doing these days? Like, what are you working on right now? I'm retired. I, I'm, I'm working on. So you're just really. gaming. That's that's. So no more rules yes. writing or. Yeah. Writing. No. I, I, the last game I wrote and which was published was uh, Warlords of Erewhon, which was a adaption of the bolt action system to a mm-hmm. fantasy war game. And right. I just thought that'd be fun, and it was fun writing it and playing it. But then it got to a point where. There weren't enough people interested. Most because all my friends are X Games Workshop or associated with Workshop in some way. None of them want to play science fiction or fantasy games. <laughs> right. They've had enough of that. Yeah. Well, there is so, something uh, to be said, right? Like when your job kind of, you know, when your job becomes your hobby or vice versa. I mean, one might imagine you, yeah. you know, you might get sick of it. So. I guess so, but I mean, I, I always enjoyed fantasy and science fiction games, and. And so, I, so I kind of thought it would be fun to do. And it, in the end, it was fun that turned into quite hard work. And the thing I 
forgot was that whenever I've been involved with projects before, they've always been cooperative projects to some yeah. extent. Even if I've been the lead design, and often I would be the lead designer or I'd be the person that tied everything together. But with Erewhon, I was pretty much pitched on my own. Um, mm -hmm. It was just hard work. Um, yeah. And I don't, and, and Warlord weren't especially enthusiastic about publishing it. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, they only really published it because um, I, I, I said, they always get first dibs on anything I do. Mm -hmm. I said, well, if you don't want to publish it, in fact, they said, oh, we publish it, it's one day. I'm getting one day. Yeah, I don't want you to publish it one day. Right. Or you, I want you to publish it either, you know, the next in foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. and they said, oh, well, no, no, we don't, we don't want it then. I said, well, I think, oh, fine. So immediately I said that, I asked a few other people if they were interested in publishing it. And of course they all said, yes, we'll publish it, Rick. Somebody. And the minute, at the minute Warlord heard that somebody else was going to publish it, they said, no, no, we'll publish it. So there you go. <laughs> a little bit of a bidding war on your uh, intellectual yeah, property, it sounds like. In the end, I think they felt they were having their arm twisted. I felt that it was, they were brushing it and they did yeah. they, well, what do you think their hesitation was? They're not interested in fantasy. Oh, just not. Yeah, they just want to kind of, kind of keep they it. They don't sell fantasy figures. They don't make fantasy figures. They're mostly interested in historical wargaming. Yeah, they make money out of bolt action, really. And yeah. then the things they do in addition to that are really John's hobbies. Yeah. Uh, well, look, bolt John's action is so popular. Oh my god! Like I, I feel like mm -hmm. again. Look, I always kind of, I'm, I just turned forty-one, so it's like I've been. Believe it or not, I've kind of been in the hobby since I was like nine or ten years old. So my litmus test is always if I can go into a Barnes and Noble bookstore or if I could go into a comic store and you're seeing historical war games on the shelves. And not only that, but people are buying them and playing them at the store. That is a win. And Bolt Action is one of those games. And I would also say Flames of War as well. You know, these are pretty mainstream games that you can find in a lot of places. Yeah, Flames of War seems to have cooled off a bit. Um, it, yeah, it's, it, it seems that way. But at the same time, their little foray into what if modern wargaming, I feel like that's rejuvenated them a bit, you know, like all that oh, yeah. team, the Team Yankee game. And unfortunately, yeah. I hate to say it, but, you know, at least in terms of like an, another European kind of conventional war, I, I know for a fact there are people out there buying up stuff to do games about Russia and the Ukraine, which I don't know, I find a bit tasteless um, given yeah. that, you know, people are literally fighting this conflict yeah, right yeah. now, but I think it's, I mean, the miniatures are selling pretty well, not so much the World yeah. War II stuff anymore, but the, the yeah, modern it, stuff. It, it's an interesting point you made there. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, as a teacher, I don't know how you approach that, but sure. uh, I find, I find modern warfare is it, it, it just, I mean, when I say modern post, anything post World War II, even some aspects of World War II, yeah. I'm not sure I'd enjoy a game that was about bombing Dresden, for example. You know, look, right, this is a dilemma I have all the time because I'm not like yeah. I look, I teach a course on military history at, at the Brunswick School in Greenwich, where I work now. Um, it's just been something that I've always studied. But I don't know, like here, let me phrase it this way. If we're thinking about modern wargaming, you know, if if I was gonna run a game about the Iraq war and I was running for kids there would have to be a very specific reason why I would be doing that. I might be wanting to teach something, not even so much about the war itself or the tactical you know, decisions that commanders might need to make, but maybe couple it with something outside of that avenue, almost like use the game as a way of 
inspiring them to want to know more about the conflict or the world at the time. That's kind of the way I would I would really need to look at it. But look, you're raising an even bigger point because with HMGS Next Gen, you know, we are we are kind of like introducing games about war to, you know, young people. So it's always a um it's always yeah. a little bit of a tricky balance, you know. It is, but in, in historical context, so thinking in terms of the Napoleonic Wars or even mm-hmm. ancient wars or whatever, medieval wars, it's so remote. Agreed. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the doesn't really have ramifications. Yeah. The American Civil War even doesn't. Um, uh, a Crimean War in, in, in Europe. The First World War, he starts to become um, within historical memory. Yeah. But even there, I don't, you know, you, you can talk more about the um, the politics and the power struggle and the, uh, you know, the conflict between empires. Mm-hmm. The Second World War, starts to become a little bit there's certain things about the second world war that i find i've always found slightly uncomfortable Mm -hmm. when i wrote that um uh, i I wrote the background for the uh section for the uh, first bolt action edition and i think i put in a section which basically said you know you don't have to play this as a historical war game you can play this as a tanks and men game just get some tanks get some men get some and you're playing an an army man game yeah and you make up and you know Riconia or whatever, you know, you make up your own nation, you know, and paint your tanks how you like and, and whatever. And in fact, Charles Grant's battle does exactly that. Yeah. You know, um, but no, no one ever did it. Absolutely. Yeah. It goes down the opposite way. They go, they, they become historically um, obsessed with historical minutiae, which bolt action doesn't support terribly well in some respects. But I think that's um, a good thing though. Like I, hmm. I, I like bolt actions take on it because I mean, look, you know, you can think of it a lot of different ways. Like I'm rather sure in my own sort of research and studies, you know, soldiers that were fighting in World War II, they don't necessarily care which version of the Panzer Mark IV they're up against. They're seeing a tank, you know? Yeah, it could even be a tiger as far as they're concerned. Exactly. And I mean, the thing is, it's like, one of the things I admire a lot about Bolt Action is that if you look at World War II games before Bolt Action came out, it's like there are some rule sets where you're literally counting rivets. How many rivets are on the turret? I, rolling a D20 to figure out where on the turret you hit, you know, how many millimeters of armor. I mean, at some point or another, it's a game, you know, and you really have to think about as a designer, like, am I really trying to teach somebody or reflect something about World War II or am I designing a game that's meant to be fun? Yeah. And that's the other thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rick. I was going to say the reality of it is that um, uh, the the quality of the the shells and of the armor was hugely variable. Even on a Sherman, now I'm going to go into into geeky detail, even on a Sherman, the the actual resistance, the hardness of that armor could vary within 30%, depending on which, where, when and where they manufactured. Russian tanks, even worse. They might as well have had the armor on, but they were very, often very badly welded together. Mm-hmm. So when you hit them, the, um, they, they'd split. And the steel on the Russian tank was very, very hard. It was much harder than on uh, German or um, uh, Allied uh, armor, such that when it was hit by a shell, the inside would sp- spoil. You'd get shell frag- you'd get fragments of armor going around. So that tradition of... You know, it's sloped armor, it's this many millimeters, it's this shell, it's got this kinetic energy. It's all rubbish. Yeah. It, it really is rolling a dice at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a really interesting account of a, uh, a British um, tank crew that ended up with a uh, Cromwell tank 
that was really fast. They really liked this tank because it was dead fast. And then one day they turned a corner and they um, found themselves facing a, something like a flat veiling. Mm-hmm. And the, Ger- the Germans just let them have it in the flat veiling. So it's 20 millimeter shells or whatever going bang, bang, bang. The, the tank backs away. And they found they've got all these shells stuck in the armor. They'd been running around in a mild steel prototype without realizing. <laughs> <laughs> and now these shells were stuck in the front. You know, so it wasn't even armored. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, there's just so much variability. And look, you know, another way to think of it, too, or at least this is what I think about, even though it's probably not popular and no wargaming company would ever say this. But, I mean, you could probably just replace all of those pretty tanks on a bolt-action table or infantry with blocks and people would still play because really what you're doing is it's a game and it's a good game. And people want to roll dice and they want to make decisions and they want to think. So I always, that's some, that's a way that I kind of preface things at times with kids where it's like, you're more than likely not going to be thinking about um, the fact that you're playing a Confederate unit of infantry attacking those Union soldiers. You're really thinking about math. And unless I'm very specific as a game master to point things out about the history, kids are really, they're playing a game. That's what I would argue. Well, that's the great thing about wargaming. It combines all those elements, doesn't it? Um, uh, it does, it, yeah. It, it's, it's not just the maths and the, uh, the calculation which uh, and, and the geometry to, often, you know, which you've got to think about and consider. I mean, I think when I was um, uh, when I was at school, as soon as we were introduced to Pythagoras, we started creating spaceship games with 3D movement because we like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've, you've, so you've got that, you've got that element, but you've also got the reading of the rules. So there's a literacy element um, to, uh, uh, to it. And in fact, at one point at Games Workshop, um, we were running a program in coordination with libraries in the UK because they were the people who ran the libraries found that having the Games Workshop books in meant that young lads would go into libraries. And they said, this is astonishing. Young boys never go into libraries these days. Right. And suddenly it was, it, 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 it's one of those things. So um, it, it was definitely um, seen as a positive thing in terms of encouraging literacy, particularly amongst boys. Yeah. Um, teenage boys. So you've got that. But then you've got that hands-on skill modeling element, which uh, is encouraging an artistic uh, uh uh, endeavors and you know if you learn to paint you can paint to some extent it gives you a an in into um, two-dimensional painting or 3d modeling especially with computers these days um so you've got that but then you've also got that uh, social element and again that's something which particularly young teenage boys are not good at it's not it's not naturally their field mm-hmm. but the minute you've got something where you can contribute together talk about compare often um, uh, hey, compete in a sense. You, you you've got a private language, and it it, it starts to become a um, a field where particularly young lads can feel comfortable, like sports to some extent. Yeah, for sure. You know, you've got that common ground, a commonality. Um, yeah, and, I, and so so I think that's where where gaming really scores. It's got all of those elements almost equally. Um, and, and you can be really quite passionate about any one of those things if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would argue that someone that was playing a game using just blocks, you know, you see, you, you, to some extent, you're playing squad leader. Yeah. Or, um, uh, you, you know, any, there are any number of board, SPI used to make any number of board games, Avalon Hill. Yeah, or GMT, um, yeah, tons of, tons yeah, of companies. They've got exactly that kind of mechanic going on where they, yeah. you're not playing with models, you're playing with counters. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's fine. Yeah. That's all part of what war gaming is about. Well, the other thing I think that you're touching on, which is um, it's something I talk about all the time, is just that connection with education. Because, I mean, really everything you're talking about right, right now kind of connects to the things that myself and other teachers teach in the classroom. So even like when you were talking earlier about the amount of time and effort that you put into designing some of those first games where you kind of sat down and were having a crunch of numbers and, you know, sit down and, and, and use your literacy skills to kind of write everything out. I mean, I find that with students, the second that I take something educational. So the, the example I always use is like when sixth graders would study the black death. Now, the second you take that horrible event, and turn it into a game in which kids have to defend their village um, using more futuristic sort of medical terminology. And they have to make laws and they've got to kind of defend their town and there's dice rolls involved. All of a sudden, now what the kids are doing is they're going home and researching all the things that they wouldn't research if I said, well, you have to write an essay, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I, I believe me, I'm in complete agreement. And this is in part why I even wanted to talk to you in the first place, because so much of what you're describing is so useful for kids, um, whether you're talking about math or reading or whatever. So I'll tell you the other thing that's interesting about writing war games rules is a language in its own right. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to confront the fact that the English language is so it's like a viscous coupling. It's not hard. You've got shades of meaning. So, to give you an example, if I walk into a door, that hurts. If I walk into a room, I'll just go into a room. Right. You use the same word, same expression, but it means different things. There are varieties of words. Some are, and you find that all the time. Um, one of the things I became acutely aware of, especially in the 90s, was how American English and British English vary. Because I'd write something in my rather um, working class Midlands dialect that made sense to me, but which an American would come back and say, well, can I do this or can't I? And they're going, well, he says here you may do it. He says, well, he says I may do it, but does that mean I might do it? Or does it mean I could do it? <laughs> right. All meaning different things. <laughs> meaning different things. Sure. The British and American way, the, 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 the words mean the same thing, but the breadth of meaning is slightly different. You get that a lot. Yeah, for um, sure. And, uh, and so on. When we started doing foreign language versions of Warhammer, we then had to face things like um, the fact that German is 10% longer. So all the cards we did, you couldn't get the German on the card. Oh, that is something mm -hmm. I've never thought about. That is wild. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the reasons why you have to stop doing language versions, specific versions. The other one being it's very expensive to do different language versions of, right. of card prints. But... Um, you get that. And then the German staff would come in and say, Rick, Rick, we have no word for war. You have to change the meaning of this word, it, it, this it, the war banner or the war this or the battle this or the battle that. So we have no word for war. Germans have no word for war. Right. <laughs> oh, that is too you know, funny. Yeah, I know. I know. All right. Well, Rick, I, uh, you know, I don't want to keep you forever, even though I feel like I could probably talk to you forever just because you, it, again, you, you, you have continually downplayed your sort of role in games, but it seems like you've had a hand in just about every sort of popular, interesting 
game that's sort of been developed, you know, as of late. So uh, it's it's just really nice chatting with you. And um, I just want to say kind of good luck in terms of, you know, your other endeavors. And hopefully we can chat again at some point. Yeah, that's all right. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is HMGS underscore nextgen underscore inc. Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much.